This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with philosopher and ethicist Peter Singer. Peter joined me for a wide-ranging conversation ahead of his appearance this week in Melbourne for An Evening with Peter Singer. We discuss utilitarianism as a philosophy, Peter's conception of effective altruism, the moral questions raised by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as why we should care about the suffering of animals. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to be joined by philosopher Peter Singer. He's joining me uh, over Skype to talk about a tour that he's going to be giving, but we're going to be talking about a range of philosophical topics that I'm sure will come out uh, on the evening that Peter Singer is going to be involved in in Melbourne on Sunday the 3rd of April at the MCEC or Jeff's Shed in Melbourne. And it's a really special evening because all net proceeds from the tour that Peter is going on across Australia will be donated to The Life You Can Save, which is all about supporting the efforts to alleviate global poverty. So it's definitely something you should think about attending, not just to have some intellectually stimulating thoughts and no doubt um, conversations potentially after with Peter, but also to be donating generously to a very good cause and also effectively, as we'll get to in this conversation. I should also let you know that Peter is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University in the United States, and he also works mostly now in practical ethics and is best known for his book Animal Liberation, though a number of his other books include Ethics in the Real World, The Most Good You Can Do, and The Life You Can Save. And Peter, in 2021, was awarded the Berg Gruen Prize for Philosophy and Culture. I'm very, very delighted to welcome philosopher Peter Singer onto the program again. Hi there, Peter. It's lovely to chat with you. Hi, Amy. It's, it's lovely to be back on your program. I've really enjoyed our last conversation. I think it was way back in 2019 before we even heard about the coronavirus. So we were talking about some different topics then. And um, certainly we did look at issues like animal welfare and animal suffering and also veganism and vegetarianism. We will talk about some of those topics in this conversation, no doubt. But one of the things we also did, and I'd love to do again, but in a, a bit of a different way, is to talk about philosophy and the value of philosophy and then move into a discussion on utilitarianism to to provide us with a good foundation for this conversation. And I'm sure we'll end up referencing it again later down the track when we're talking about these practical ethical concerns. One of the things that does come up often, and I know that you've addressed in essays previously, is that People will often criticise the arts and the humanities and definitely philosophy in particular, questioning its value and worth in this highly economised capitalist society where we're all meant to be producing graduates who are job ready. There's been all these studies showing that philosophy, for example, does produce highly effective people, people who end up running companies and leading different organisations. But I, I did want to ask for your reflections in particular on this issue when we're asked to defend the value, unfortunately, of the humanities, given that you are still affiliated with Princeton and still working there part-time in philosophy. You know, what are your thoughts on the value of the humanities and also in particular philosophy? 
Thanks, Amy. It's a good question. I, I would like to focus on philosophy because that's what I know more about, mm. obviously. Um, and there are two different ways in which I think it's extremely valuable to that people should study some philosophy and, and not only study it in a historical sense, but actually participate in it and think about the questions that philosophers raise and develop their thoughts on that. Um, and the two ways are firstly, essentially what you might call training in, in critical thinking skills. Um, and that's something that you know, people do in high school to some extent. And I think that's is generally recognized as important, but you can do a lot more than you are likely to do in, in high school in that. And philosophy will help you with that. And I do think it's an excellent training, as you say, and corporate leaders, uh, politicians, you know, used to be said, I remember that uh, a very high proportion of British prime ministers had studied philosophy at Oxford. And, uh, you know, that obviously stood them in, in some good stead. I'm not saying that they all did well with it. Some of them might have gone in the wrong direction. But yeah, it, it helps you to be able to assess a, a whole range of issues, to think about what the issues are, and to get across those and to express them usually fairly clearly because at least English language philosophy has a strong emphasis on clarity of thought, um, not just sounding deep and profound with a lot of woolly jargon that nobody quite knows what you mean. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it. Um, and the second is, in particular, I think, ethics or questions of values because I think everybody ought to be thinking about what, how do I want to live my life? You know, um, Socrates said, uh, an unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to go that far, but definitely examining your life is a good thing to do and can get you out of a rut. So many people are just going on and doing what their parents expected or wanted them to do and don't think about it very much. Maybe don't end up very happy with it or don't end up making as big a contribution to the world as they could have. So uh, I think... Uh, if you think about ethics, it encourages you to think about what's really important, what's valuable, what's valuable to you, what's valuable to others, and you know, ask these questions about how ought I to live. Mm. And and philosophy does change lives. It doesn't just ask these questions in a kind of theoretical way that goes you know into your head and flies out again. Um, I've had so many students who've come to me after my courses, sometimes years later, saying, "I took your course and." You know, it changed the way I thought about things. You know, maybe they said they became a vegetarian or vegan. Maybe it said they chose a career where they could do more good in the world. Maybe they started giving to effective charities. I think there's no doubt that philosophy has a very significant impact on how people live. And it's pretty hard to say the same about, you know, a lot of other subjects that people take in universities. That is very true. I'd have to agree. I do count myself as fortunate to have been able to study some subjects in philosophy. And so I have thankfully had exposure to some of the ideas that you teach and talk about and write about, including utilitarianism. But before we jump into that, I did want to reference a really interesting piece that you co-wrote right at the end of 2020. So clearly a, a poignant moment for many people after many lockdowns in 2020. And you had been writing about having a moral plan for the forthcoming year in 2021. And you were looking at a study that was taken in America, a survey of adults that found that only 23% report that they often think about or research the ethical aspect of a choice in their life. And you were thinking about, you know, how many people in America 
are really thinking about their life in a moral way and how many times does a moral issue or concern arise for them and how much are they concerned by this. And obviously, you've interpreted the figures in an interesting way. You say that at least three quarters of Americans think that ethics is important, but they don't believe that it requires much thought or research. So I wonder, springing from what you were saying there about the value of philosophy and examining your life and also these moral and ethical issues, what is the reason to have a moral plan? I mean, is it surprising to you that so few people might be constantly thinking about issues in a moral or ethical way? Because I think I was surprised by the statistics, given that I feel that I every day have a a question on principle or on morals and think about these issues. So it's interesting or surprising to me to think that people don't think about it every day. Yes. Perhaps it's not surprising when people are really struggling and they're thinking, you know, how can I get through the day or... How can I provide for my family adequately? That that's a dominant focus. But you know, in the United States, there's certainly a significant proportion of the population that is in that situation, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not more. It's not three quarters of the population. So uh, there are many more who would have the opportunity to think about it, but don't. Um, and yes, it was somewhat surprising to me that there were so few who did. I co-authored that piece with. Uh, uh, a woman researcher called Agata Sagan. So we wrote it because we we wanted to encourage more people to stop and reflect. And we thought, you know, doing that at the end of a year, at the beginning of a new year, is a way people make resolutions. But we thought rather than just say, you know, adopt some resolution, think about what are you doing with your life? And are you taking account of things broader than just yourself and those who you're very close to? And thinking about, am I living in a way that is good for the world as a whole? And you, know, you mentioned effective altruism that I've been involved with. Well, part of that is to say one of your aims, not the only thing that you think about or do, but one of your aims ought to be to make the world better generally, to, to help others. Uh, and if you do that, then you, you do have some kind of moral plan. And, and that's what we were trying to encourage people to do. Mm. And hopefully that is something that will come up more and more for people when we tackle some of these practical issues that no doubt do come up for them in their lives. But I did want to address utilitarianism because it was one of those ethical, philosophical theories that I really got into and found so interesting. And obviously, it does influence effective altruism and have a relationship to it. So I guess I was really interested to learn that there was a Chinese philosopher, actually, who wasn't necessarily the founder of utilitarianism, but he certainly did influence utilitarianism. The man called Mozart, he was from the Warring States period. And as you've written in one of your short histories or short introduction books, you say that he appears to be the earliest person recorded as advocating something like utilitarianism. And then there were other early utilitarians like William Paley as well, who um, had a more religious flavour to things. So I was also wondering if you could take us through a little bit of um, history of utilitarianism and where this idea and philosophical theory came from. Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting. The, the Mozart example is interesting because it suggests that it's, it's an idea that has arises independently in different cultures. I mean, I don't think there's a, any actual connection um, between Mozart uh, in that very ancient period and then the rise of what you might think of as modern utilitarianism, where you start to see 18th century scholars who are thinking along utilitarian lines, Cumberland, Hume, uh, Shaftesbury maybe, 
And then, of course, you get Jeremy Bentham, who really systematizes it at the end of the 18th century uh, and into the 19th century. And, and after that, it becomes a, at least a formal school of thought initially in Britain, but then spreading worldwide. So I see this as showing that there's a kind of an, an idea there that if you get people thinking in any culture, they will come up with this idea of saying, well, you know, let's try to reduce suffering and increase happiness and well-being. And isn't that the ultimate test and the ultimate value? So I think that that's something that is that is there and that people discover. And then it's a question of, do they stick with that? Do they think that that's the only value? Do they think that that's one among many different values that have to be balanced? Um, and how does that relate to the kinds of moral rules that society has about don't tell lies, you know, do this? And in fact, for Mozi, he was sort of arguing against the more Confucian view about, well, you have specific roles as a member of a family, you have obligations to your parents and to your family and then to your community and your state and so on. And and Mozi, like utilitarians, was more of a kind of a universalist. He was more saying, you know, well, there would be times in which the greater good of many would override your obligations in that specific role to your parents or other members of your family. And so... I'm just interested, what would you perceive to be some of the competing philosophies in this same field and at the same time to utilitarianism? Well, any view that says there is an absolute rule that you must not break, no matter what the consequences, is a competing view. That's sometimes called a deontological view. That's based on on duties that you have, like the duty to your parents, let's say, that Mozart was critical of, or the idea that you must never tell a lie, which the German philosopher, also in the late 18th century, Immanuel Kant, uh, wrote a little essay saying it's never justified to lie. Even if somebody is trying to murder somebody and the intended victim is hiding in your house and the would-be murderer comes to your door and says, have you seen him? And, and the only way you can stop this guy finding him is to say, yes, I saw him going down the street that way. You can't do that. You can't tell a lie. So that's clearly a non-utilitarian view because a utilitarian would say, well, look, you know, here's an innocent person going to get killed um, and you know, you're speaking to this murderer. So obviously it's better consequences uh, if you tell a lie, but Kant says no. And, and we see that in other, you know, perhaps fewer people would hold that view today, but we, we see it in the idea that it's always wrong to take an innocent human life, which is, was used as an argument against uh, voluntary euthanasia or you know, as we now have in Victoria and most of Australia and many other countries, um, voluntary assisted dying, as we call it. So that's also kind of an absolutist view that is is not utilitarian. Mm. And so I'm really was also interested, and I remember we discussed this last time, was the idea that utilitarianism is one form of consequentialism. And there are different types of utilitarianism, it seems, that there are different weightings or emphases. And you did talk about the idea of not only increasing happiness or pleasure, but also reducing suffering and that being on a bit of a scale. Um, it's much harder to increase happiness, but it's much easier to reduce the amount of suffering. I wonder, could you just tease out some of those issues in terms of how a utilitarian and in particular the way you perceive it to work best in the real world when we're thinking about either reducing suffering or increasing happiness? Yes, certainly. Well, in the real world, you, there are many things that you need to try to do and that is of course assess the impact of your actions or if you're part of some larger body assess the impact of the actions of that body 
curiously, coincidentally, I'm 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 in Sydney now to, to give one of these talks in 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 Sydney, and I'm having lunch in a couple of hours with some people from the New South Wales uh, government department that has been uh, tasked with assessing the social impact of government policies. Um, and that's that's an, a really important thing to do, but also quite a difficult thing to do because there's so many different effects. You know, there will be some people who will be greatly benefited by your policies. There will be a lot of people who, you know, since they have to pay taxes, that will be some something that uh, they'll be slightly worse off because their taxes will be a little higher because you implement some policy. How do you balance that kind of question? So, you know, I, I, they're, they're difficult and I don't have clear answers. I mean, you know, there's a theoretical question you could say to people, well, suppose that you were choosing between a situation in which you you got this benefit, but, you know, you had to live, let's say, consecutively the lives of all these people who have slightly less money because you got this benefit, um, or a world in which all of these people have a bit more money, but Every you know you do also have to live the life of the person who doesn't get the benefit. So so that's kind of theoretical answer to it. But um, how you actually decide that is is really difficult. Yes, and that's where philosophy helps. Is as we've said, thinking it through, having a framework to think these kind of questions through. But I did want to also bring in now effective altruism and what that means to you. It's something that you are obviously well known for and associated with and something that you talk about and have written about in great depth. People might be familiar with the word altruist or altruism, someone who is doing something good, a good turn and not expecting anything in return. That's how I've often kind of interpreted it intuitively is to think that I'm not going to get some material gain or benefit and that's not the reason why I would do it, not the reason why I would give assistance or aid. So with that, what would effective altruism be? So effective altruism is, you know, I think you, you accurately describe altruism. You're, you're trying to, to help others without thought of material gain anyway. You, you may get feelings of satisfaction. I don't think, you know, from the fact that you know that you've benefited others, I don't think that detracts from it being altruism. Um, but you're not doing it for a, a reward in material sense. But, you know, many people do this and they don't really think very much about is this the best thing that I could be doing? Um, and I'm not thinking here of a case where, you know, you fall, a child falls in a pond and is about to drown and, you know, the only thing you could do is jump in and haul the child out. Obviously, I think everybody would would do that. But one way in which we're altruistic is that we give to charities. Um, and when people give to charities, very, very few of them actually do any research to say, what is the charity going to do with this? You know, maybe they have some broad idea of what the charity is going to do. Um, and is this charity really going to make the best use of the money that I have? Because money is is fungible, right? So if if I have 100 or 1,000 or $10,000 that I decided I can give to charity, then different charities will do different things with it. And surely we want to know which ones will do the most good with it. Just as if we were buying a, a new laptop or phone, we would want to say, where can I get the best value for money? But we don't do that about uh, giving to charity. Uh, and we don't do it that often about our career choice either, which goes back to this other question about having a moral plan for your career. So effective altruism says you should do a little bit of research. Uh, and in fact, it often says w- we will provide you with the information because there are organiz- there are websites where you can find about charities and about careers. And you ought to think about that and not choose just impulsively or intuitively, but choose on the basis of some 
thought about where you can do the most good. So that's why we're talking about being maximally effective. That if you're less effective, if you give to a charity, which may be a charity that does good, but you could have given to one that would do 10 times as much good with, with the money as the one you've given to, and that's that's perfectly feasible. It could be a larger multiple. Then, you know, effectively you've wasted 90% of what you've given. Mm. So, so that's what effective altruism is concerned about, and it's trying to help people make those choices. Uh, and The Life You Can Save, which spun off the book that I wrote on that name, um, uh, is a charity that is trying to do that specifically in the area of alleviating extreme poverty. And that is a, a really good point in terms of alleviating extreme poverty as you raise the fact that often the greatest gain um, is in those low-income countries where the same amount of money you're going to get a greater benefit than if you spent it in a developed country like Australia or on an issue that's a very complicated one. So, um, you know, there are examples of malaria and malaria nets. And another really great example right now is vaccinations, COVID-19 vaccinations, and the fact that in Africa, they're still so far behind uh, in terms of getting their population vaccinated. And obviously, the UN set up the COVAX facility to get that moving. But we have seen Western countries and rich countries not provide uh, the supplies that they had promised. And I thought that that was a really interesting current ethical issue uh, that's very pressing for us right now because obviously more variants will crop up when there's more unvaccinated people in the population. So, I mean, when we're reflecting on some of those issues, particularly in the developing countries, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, vaccination, for example, right now, the COVID vaccine inequities that we're facing? And clearly that's a kind of issue that we as a society could be addressing and through an effective altruism lens it seems like a no-brainer to to be donating all of our surplus vaccines to continents like Africa and countries like Indonesia. Yeah I think it is a no-brainer and, and in fact it's not it's, as you said it's not even really necessarily altruism mm. because in the long run we'll be better off if there are fewer opportunities for new viruses to develop or new variants of the virus. So we should be doing that, and we're not doing it nearly enough. We're doing a little bit of it, but um, the discrepancy is still very strong. And, uh, yeah, we're getting, you know, we're having third, third doses and uh, fourth doses are being talked about now, um, and there are people who, many people who haven't had their first doses, not because they're anti-vaxxers, but because it isn't available in their country. So uh, it is it is really somewhat scandalous uh, that uh, the COVAX has not received the resources that it needs to distribute everywhere that it is needed. Um, in a way, it's not surprising because, you know, we already knew that, that people are dying for want of bed nets in countries where malaria kills children, and yet we are, we are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just to save a life um, here. So, yeah, that that disparity is there and it's there with the vaccine as well as in other areas. In the, the description for your talk, it does say that you uh, will be tackling issues like mandatory vaccination. And I did read your column in Project Syndicate from last year when you were looking at uh, compulsory vaccination. And I wanted to draw out some of those ethical issues that you raise in there because they are very interesting and I think they apply even more broadly in this pandemic and they're things that we are thinking about personally every day. So you did make a comparison between 
vaccination and seatbelts and it's something that we have certainly heard come up in conversation and it does make a lot of sense. But I wondered if you could draw out some of those philosophical thoughts that you had when you were considering whether vaccination should be compulsory and what the kind of impetus is and what philosophical theories or frameworks might help us to grapple with that issue and to come to a conclusion. And you've obviously come to your um, conclusion, but I just wonder if you could tell us how you got to that conclusion. Yeah, sure. And I think it's very pertinent now that we're sort of seeing these billboards as we drive around the city saying freedom, 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 but mm. they don't. we don't think about what freedom really involves and what the principles are under which individuals should have freedom. So the philosophical background for me um, comes from John Stuart Mill, who was one of the, the great 19th century utilitarians, follower of Jeremy Bentham. And uh, he suggested in his classic essay on liberty that the principle that should decide when states are justified in interfering with individual actions is, are they doing it to prevent harm to others? Um, and if they're doing it to prevent harm to others, it's justified. If they're doing it for the moral or physical good of the individual, then that should be left to the individual's choice. Now, I don't actually totally agree with that. And the seatbelt legislation is one that I've always supported, um, you know, growing up in Victoria, which was the first jurisdiction in the world to make seatbelt wearing compulsory. And now that's accepted pretty much universally. Um, and that is paternalistic um, because you don't harm others by not wearing your seatbelt, except maybe rather indirectly that you're more likely to need hospital treatment and attention and so on if you're in an accident. But it's very indirect. you know. And I think nevertheless, it's justified because people don't really think consciously and clearly enough about, should I put on a seatbelt? The risk of being in an accident is very small. But on the other hand, it could be very terrible if I'm in an accident um, and not wearing a seatbelt. And I, there's not much trouble in wearing a seatbelt. So that's why I just to protect people against that kind of laziness of not putting a seatbelt on, I think it's okay to have a small fine for not wearing a seatbelt. But in the case of COVID vaccination, you know, that comes squarely under the preventing harm to others principle. So Mill would have said, yes, it is justified for the state to intervene, because if you don't get vaccinated, there's, there's actually two ways in which you could harm others. One is that you could be more likely to get the uh, virus and to spread it to others. And the second, which has become very clear in parts of the United States, where there are large portions of the population unvaccinated, is that you end up filling the ICUs, the intensive care units in hospitals, um, because you're much sicker because you were not vaccinated. Even though there are people in ICUs who were vaccinated, it does happen. But statistically speaking, the chances that you not only will get the virus, but will be so ill that you need an in intensive care and a respirator are far, far greater if you are unvaccinated. And that means that, you know, you will be preventing other people from getting a bed in an ICU when they need it to save their life. Um, you know, maybe they're vaccinated people who still get COVID, but they might have some completely unrelated thing. In fact, one thing that's clearly happened here in Australia too is that optional surgery got postponed. And optional surgery, when you postpone it long enough, can be quite serious. Uh, and in mm. in you know parts of the United States, even essential service, uh, surgery really had to be postponed. And it's clearly documented that some people died because their surgery was postponed because there were not enough beds in the ICU to take them after surgery. And then the condition worsened to such a point that they 
could no longer be saved. So uh, I think that's a major way in which being unvaccinated is harming others, and that justifies saying we we can require you to get vaccinated. Yeah. I wonder then when we're thinking about that theory um, and how you've applied Mill's thinking there, whether that also might apply when we think about mask wearing and in particular when I was thinking about vulnerable people, for example, the medically vulnerable who are currently having to isolate more than the general population now that mask wearing isn't required, are we impinging on their freedom to live a life outside and even one that's freer than they are right now because we're not wearing masks. Because obviously for them, if they get the COVID-19 disease, they're more likely to have a serious illness or potentially die than someone who doesn't have perhaps uh, pre-existing conditions. So I wondered, thinking through that issue, whether for people to say, oh, well, I just want to be free to wear a mask or not wear a mask and it's my choice, are we actually uh, impinging on other people's freedoms to live a life and one that's a safe life? I think we are, especially if we're indoors. I'm, I'm not convinced of the evidence that mask wearing is important uh, outdoors. Let's say, you know, you're passing somebody on the street. I'm not sure that you can get enough of the virus um, that way. Although perhaps if you're sitting next to them at a football game, um, you might, that might be different. But certainly if you're inside, or let's say if you're on public transport, um, I think it's we should be wearing, continuing to wear masks on public transport, and uh, it's wrong not to do so. Um, because that's something that people, you know, often don't really have a choice about using public transport. They may need to get to work. They may, as you say, be be particularly vulnerable, and they may not be able to get to work any other way than through public transport. So um, I support the idea that we should continue to wear masks in those situations and uh, some other situations as well. Because again, it's a bit like seatbelts. It's it's pretty minor for us, really. Um, it's not a big deal to wear a mask. Uh, in those circumstances, and you do restrict the freedom of others if you're not doing so. Yeah, it makes me think that, you know, those people need to go to the supermarket, they need to go to the chemist, uh, and maybe even to their workplace that might be an indoor Mm -hmm. office space, for example, and those are all essential type of things that they need to do to survive as human beings. So it's something that I wish we would talk about a little bit more given that we have such high levels of transmission right now, whether indoor mask wearing should have a, a moral component to it, whether we should be thinking it's not just about ourselves but about others and looking at it through this philosophical lens which seems to be so useful but not deployed often enough. Yeah, I agree and I hope that people will be wearing masks at the events that I'm speaking at uh, here in Sydney and Brisbane and, and back in Melbourne too. Yeah, well, hopefully they do do that. Um, I'm sure they'll feel compelled to if you mention it and your thinking behind it because it is very convincing. I wanted to also come back to philanthropy when we were talking about effective altruism and not benefiting materially. Philanthropy is one of those areas, especially big philanthropy, where you see particularly well-off individuals donating. And you'll often see them donate to a particular cause that is aligned to their interests or their passions. And I guess that's not necessarily a bad thing, but A, is it effective? But also B, my question is, 
should wealthy, you know, individuals who are donating their wealth, should they be benefiting materially? Should they be accepting a board role or having their name as part of the thing that they've donated to? And should there be that kind of material benefit that does seem to very, very often flow from philanthropic giving at that high level that we see in society? I think some of the things you mentioned really have a distorting effect on, on where the money goes. And, and I have to say, um, being a professor at Princeton, I see that all the time because Princeton is constantly building new buildings. Um, and the reason it's building new buildings is that people like to give large sums of money. Princeton has many wealthy alumni who give to the university, um, but they tend to give to buildings that will then bear their name. And so uh, we get lots of buildings which is quite disruptive yes they can be very nice buildings when they're built but that's not necessarily even if you want to give to princeton right which i don't particularly recommend either because it's an extremely wealthy institution already it has an endowment of 26 billion or something like that i'm not sure exactly what the figure is now um but you know even if you did want to give to princeton scholarships to help disadvantaged people come to princeton and so on would i think or, or maybe to help research in particular fields that's likely to be beneficial to to the future of our planet um those would make sense more than more than buildings so i think effective altruists will say you know yes if if people are going to give and you know you want to encourage them to give but you'd also want to encourage them to give most effectively and it's usually not the kinds of things that will have their name on it Uh, so that's that's a distorting effect And then for those of us who are not wealthy billionaires or millionaires with yachts and those kind of things, I mean, one of the questions that some people have is what kind of impact can I have? And, you know, if if I'm on a a low salary um, and not particularly well off, uh, how effective can I be with the donation that I'm making? And do I make a difference? You can certainly still make a difference, even on relatively low incomes. You have to realize that you can you can save lives for maybe three three or four thousand dollars, and you know you may not be able to afford to give that in a year, but if you give a little bit each each month, let's say it'll add up to that, or you'll join with others and together we'll tip it over the the amounts needed. So you will make a difference in that way, but you'll also make a difference in in setting an example that I think I'm trying to get through. You know, through the life you can save, I'm trying to spread the idea that everybody who's you know, not really at the very bottom of uh, the economic ladder in countries like Australia can afford to give something. I mean, if if you're buying um, if you're buying bottled water or or bottled drinks when you could drink water, that's a luxury that um, you know a billion people in the world can't afford, um, and that's something that you're spending money on that you don't need to. So we can help, and we can set an example. And and although people may not be giving very much per person, if if everybody is doing it, if a lot of the people are doing it, it actually adds up to, to quite large sums. So trying to encourage others doing this and then encourage others in your workplace to do it is, is really helpful. And of course, you can also be politically active. You can make it clear to your member of parliament that you're upset at the fact that Australia as a nation is giving currently 0.22% of gross national income to uh, foreign aid. So that's 22 cents in every hundred dollars that the nature earns, um, I mean, it's 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 really pennies, mm. and it's and that's it's gone down over the years, and it's time that it went up again. 
Oh, absolutely. Peter, I wanted to talk about animals because this is something that you're very passionate about and clearly known for from the 1970s onwards. And it's something that has come up for me since we last spoke and I've got some burning questions for you. So I wonder if you'd be able to talk to them. But I did want to set the scene through utilitarianism. You say that all the leading utilitarians are clear that suffering is no less bad when it is the suffering of an animal than when it is the suffering of a human. And uh, you also have referenced in the past, I think it was Bentham in a footnote saying the question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? So I was interested in that. And obviously we know that vertebrates can feel pain and have, you know, suffering and and experience pain in similar ways to humans. We also know that some invertebrates do too, like octopuses. And we now know even crustaceans do, uh, which is very concerning given how we do treat them when we cook them and boil them alive in some cases. Uh, And you do say that there's an estimated 65 billion vertebrate uh, land animals that are killed for food every year. So with that and knowing that you wrote Animal Liberation in 1975, uh, which was clearly a kind of pivotal point in the idea of reconceiving the way that we think about animals, what are some of the concerns that you still have, the, the greatest concerns you still have in terms of the progress that hasn't been made for animals? Yeah, well, the greatest concerns that I have are about the increasing number of vertebrate animals um, that uh, are being factory farmed, that we're uh, imposing miserable lives on, uh, as well as as well as deaths. And it's increasing all the time. And that figure that you quoted of 65 million, I'm, I'm currently revising animal liberation. It, it needs an update. And that's my main research work at the moment. And the current figure from the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization is 77 billion now. And that's just land vertebrates. And I also think that I somewhat neglected in the earlier editions of Animal Liberation, uh, fish who clearly are also vertebrates and can also feel pain. And that makes the number much larger still. And even if we just focus on the fish that we're farming, you know, aquaculture is really a kind of factory farming where they're very crowded together. And I think there's good evidence that they're also stressed by that crowding and the confinement. So that would probably add um, another, maybe another 100 billion to the vertebrate animals that we're giving miserable lives to. Mm. Uh, And that's, you know, that increase is partly because of the prosperity of places like China, which is in itself a good thing, but means that they're raising and eating uh, a lot more animals. And I've seen videos of really just horrible factory farms, like an eight-story building that is just full of pigs, you know, indoors all the time, um, quite confined, hardly even seeing humans because more and more of it is done by artificial intelligence. It's something of a nightmare and it does trouble me a lot, um, I have to say, that, that this is going on. And even if we've slightly improved the treatment of animals in Western countries and the European Union has adopted laws to outlaw some of the worst forms of confinement of animals, in other parts of the world, the problem is worse than it was when I first wrote about it in 1975. It sounds dystopic. And I think the problem is that we don't see it and we're not witnessing it um, and experiencing it and potentially having the aha moments that we talked about in our last conversation. Because I mentioned that my one was um, on a grade three camp seeing an overfed pig who couldn't move that was about to be sent off to slaughter. And I could see the pain and suffering in its eyes and its face and its body language. 
Uh, it was very upsetting to me. Um, so I became a vegetarian at that point. And you told me about your aha moment at, at Oxford. I think you were talking to a vegetarian mm-hmm. in uh, the 1970s and you're having a, a conversation a, about the reasons why you would become a vegetarian. I mean, if we're not seeing these issues or talking about them, how do we create other people's aha moments? I mean, what do you think needs to happen to create enough of a groundswell to reverse this trend? I hope that we will see them, not directly, but uh, you know, there's a lot of video footage that people can see. And fairly recently, just maybe a month or so ago, uh, the New York Times ran, uh, it's now run sort of video opinions, and it ran something called, I think, The Hidden Costs of Chicken. Uh, and it was uh, it showed graphic video of factory farm chicken conditions and the fact in particular that chickens have been bred to grow so fast and to put on weight so fast that their immature legs can't really support them because the chickens that are sold in supermarkets are are really babies they're about 45 days old Um, and yet they're grossly you know grossly obese by standards of previously bred chickens so their legs start to buckle under them and um, often they then can't walk um, and they may just die of thirst or starvation because they can't walk to the food areas mm-hmm. and you've got 20,000 birds in a shed and nobody is going to really individually look after chickens and say, oh, this one's sick, we need to put it out of its misery. So all of that's on video and the New York Times showed it to its readers and that was, I thought, you know, a change. Those videos have been around, but you've had to go to websites like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals or here, Animals Australia, and you can see videos like that, but people don't do that. But if the New York Times is putting it out, maybe more people will see it. Maybe more people will realize this. Uh, and of course, there's also an environmental concern about eating animals now that wasn't there when I became a vegetarian in the 1970s, but is much stronger now. And more people are changing for that reason. Uh, and f- responding to that, there's more plant-based foods out there. Um, so, you know, I think it's getting easier and easier to avoid eating meat um, and to avoid supporting the factory farm industry. And I'm hoping that it will be replaced and that that will be part of the solution, just uh, to find other ways of producing the kinds of foods that people want without all of this animal suffering and all of this greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. I mean, even just personally, it's become a lot easier for me <laughs> to to eat as a vegetarian and not just be given a salad at a pub. Um, and uh, one thing that I really wanted to ask you about, because it's come up just in the last few weeks, we've got here in Victoria, the duck hunting season has come back around. And that's a, a always a contentious issue, understandably, for many people here in Victoria. If we're thinking about Ducks and birds in particular, we know that they're highly skilled, highly intelligent. They have amazing biologies in terms of how they behave and how they work. Uh, but one of the things that is really shocking, I guess, in duck hunting is is the fact that, I mean, it's really seen as a sport. And our premier here, Daniel Andrews, has been, I guess, criticised by some who've said uh, that his comparisons were inappropriate. And he did make a comparison by saying, some of us play golf, some people go shooting. That's a choice they are free to make. I mean, to me, they're not equivalents. And I wondered from a philosophical perspective, but also from this idea of animal suffering and thinking about, you know, duck shooting and duck hunting as an example, choosing to play golf and choosing to shoot a living being couldn't be the same, could they? 
Not at all. No, I mean, I think that's a really inept comparison. I mean, it's not as if the golf ball suffers when you hit it. If that were the case, then yes, that would be a bad thing to do. But we know that it doesn't, um, and we know that the ducks do. Uh, and not only are they killed, and they're you know native water birds, but um, very often they're not killed uh, immediately, and they they may be left injured. And there's a lot of suffering going on. I, it's many years now. I used to go out with Laurie Levy, who was a great pioneer of the campaigns against duck shooting, and I went out uh, to the wetlands and saw the openings of duck season myself, and tried to um, help pe- help ducks that were injured, or 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 show that there were protected species that were being shot that shot that shouldn't have been shot. And uh, yeah, it's really disappointing that that is still going on today. That that hasn't stopped. Yeah, well, even on the first day, Wildlife Victoria discovered that a blue-winged shoveler, two of them, in fact, had already been killed in the first day, which is a threatened species that is not allowed to be shot, and that there were also many ducks that had just been left and hadn't been picked up. And so, as you say, may have had a very long and drawn-out death, unfortunately. So, I guess I'm really surprised that this is something that we're still having to push back on. But what could be the vested interest in keeping duck shooting? I just wonder whether you had any thoughts on that. I think it's the votes in the rural seats that um, that Labor would like to would like to win that may be important. You know, there are some rural seats that Labor um, holds or wins. Um, ones particularly those with larger cities in them. And uh, Labor feels that it would lose votes if it uh, if it were to come out against you know to ban duck season, which um, I think is is a pity. Uh, and and the, and the Liberal National Coalition wouldn't do it either, of course. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's purely political. I'm quite sure that if you took a, a poll, the vast majority of Victorians would be opposed to it. And if we had the kind of system that some of the US states like California have where citizens could gather signatures and then you could have a referendum and if it passed, then that would be the law. Um, I'm sure if that were the case here, we would have done that long ago and there would be no duck season now. Yeah. Peter, just finally, to close out this conversation on a kind of related note, so we have just been speaking about animals and also we've spoken about the pandemic this pandemic has brought up inequities. It's also brought up the fact that, you know, climate change, the environment, poverty, mining, all of these things lead to spillovers where we have animals infecting other animals and then animals infecting humans. These kind of zoonotic diseases that appear and they've become more and more frequent as time has gone on, certainly in the last few decades. I wonder, you know, do you have thoughts on that given that all of those points are ethical points around, you know, dealing with climate change and how that affects human beings, dealing with animal to human transmission of viruses and how that causes immense suffering as we've seen in the last two and a bit years. What are the philosophical concerns for you around these issues? And do you think there's a way that humanity could be tackling them better instead of just reacting, which we seem to be doing every time? We kind of say, oh gosh, I wish we'd had a pandemic surveillance system. Oh, I'd wish we'd, you know, checked for those bats in the cave. Yeah. You know, what should we be doing instead of this kind of reactive mode? We, we should be thinking, doing more forward thinking. And again, that's something that effective altruists have often emphasised, that uh, we need to think about the the future and to take steps and um, you know on the pandemic in the United States it was worse there actually had been when Trump came into office there had been a committee to look at pandemic issues and, and report on on risks of pandemics and preparedness for pandemics and Trump 
wound it up and so it wasn't there by the time the pandemic came around but we you know we we certainly should be doing all of these things we again we don't give sufficient weight to the future some some people in effective altruism want to think about very long term future but even you know even if we think about the relatively near term future and the risks to us we should be thinking about what can we do now that will prevent catastrophes occurring you know catastrophes whether they're things like pandemics that will disrupt the global economy and cause a lot of poverty or of course you know even worse things that might cause the extinction of our species and and of all life on the planet. Peter I'm so grateful to you for taking us through so many different subjects you're a wonder and uh, you're always really fascinating to speak with. I hope that people can head along to your your um, they're not concerts, are they? You're not going to give a performance. but uh... No, I'm not going to sing, <laughs> fortunately for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're going to be talking. It's called An Evening with Peter Singer. It's presented by Think Inc. And as you say, you're actually up in Sydney at the moment. You're going to be in Brisbane on Tuesday, the 29th of March, and then in Melbourne on Sunday, the 3rd of April at the Convention Centre, also known as Jeff's Shed. And you've also got a virtual online stream that people can engage with, which is fantastic uh, if anyone's isolating and can't attend in person. So yeah, I hope people can do that because as we said uh, at the top of this chat, all net proceeds from the tour are going to be donated to The Life You Can Save, uh, which is a really wonderful initiative. And people can also go to the website to understand how they can better donate and make change in an effective, altruistic way. So um, thank you so much, Peter Singer, for joining me today and all the best with your tour. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to your listeners, Amy, and I hope some of them do come along. That would be great. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.